I talked to a student recently at one of our woke college campuses who said she is required in every class to introduce herself and to give her pronouns. Well, I'm Ted Cruz, and my pronoun is kiss my ass. This is The Middle with Anthony Weiner. Unplugged. Welcome to episode 63 of The Middle Unplugged, a break in the middle of the week when we reclaim the microphone from the far left and the far right and try to carve out some time for a less shrill and less extreme and generally less angry conversation. Well, welcome to the election year. We have so much to look forward to, polls being taken, polls being misunderstood, polls being used as content for hours of political podcasts and cable news segments. But the undercard this year is the race for Congress. That's what we're going to look at today. We have, as you know, a divided government and a divided country. But it's not evenly divided. There are more Democratic voters in the country than Republican ones. Joe Biden got 7 million more votes than Donald Trump did. That same year, about 5 million more votes were cast for Democrats in the House of Representatives than for Republicans. The Democratic majority hasn't meant a majority in the House, largely because of the ability of Republican state legislatures to draw districts that minimize the number of districts that reasonably can be elected Democrats. Still, the House is as close to a tie as, as it has been in our nation's history, with the Republicans barely controlling the chamber, if control is what you want to call they demonstrated so far. It's hard to do much prognosticating about the future control of the House because there are still states that will have their congressional lines changed this year because of court challenges. For example, here in my home state of New York, the lines from 2022 that provided the bulk of the gains for the Republicans are now being redrawn, presumably to favor Democrats. I'll keep an eye on that for you, and probably by spring or so, we'll be able to get our arms around who is up and who is, who is down in the people's house. The fate of the Senate is much clearer. The Senate is structurally Republican because each state has two senators, irrespective of population, as you know. And there are more Republican states than Democratic ones. So what's going to happen this year? Well, the picture is pretty dire for Democrats. To bring you up to date today, there are 48 Democrats and three independents who caucus with the Democrats and chose Chuck Schumer as their leader for a total of 51. Plus, in the case of a 50-50 tie, you have Vice President Harris for the Democrats. 100 senators with a six-year term. That means that one-third of the joint is up every two years. This year, that means 34 senators are up for re-election. With me so far? So the problem is that of the 34, only 11 of them are held by Republicans, and none of them, none of those Republicans, looks vulnerable. Listen to this list of states and tell me if any you think will vote for a Democrat. Indiana, Missouri, Nebraska, they have to have two seats up, Tennessee, Wyoming. So if the Democrats are going to gain any, it's almost impossible um, I say almost because there are two that they're going to at least try, Texas and Florida. Texas has this cat called Ted Cruz. You heard a little bit of his groveling at the top of the show. By the way, some context for that. He had said that the attack on January 6th was a terrorist attack, and that was him basically apologizing to, uh, for saying that on Fox News. Texas is one of those states that Democrats squint at every so often and convince themselves that it's a winnable state. The Democrats will likely field another candidate who will get everyone excited the way that Ben O'Rourke did last time. Young, charismatic, and sure to raise scads of cash 
the Democrats around the country will have plenty of reasons to donate because they hate Cruz. Florida has Rick Scott, who was a fountain of spewing bad ideas when he was chairman of the Republican Senate Campaign Committee. In case you've forgotten or don't really track policy ideas from Rick Scott, he made news by proposing the sunsetting of all government programs, including Social Security and Medicare. Did I mention he's the senator from Florida? His opponent is former Representative Demi Moriscal Powell. One thing you may want to know about her is that she lost her race for re-election in her own congressional seat in 2020. Both of these seats are very long shots for an important reason that we should keep in mind when looking at the rest of the races. It used to be fairly common for voters to ticket split between the candidate they support for president and the one they vote for for Senate on the same ballot. No more. In 1988, in the 33 Senate races that year, 17 split between the party they chose for president and who they chose for the Senate. In 2016, there were none. And in 2020, there was just one. So with that in mind, let's move on to the seats that Democrats hold that are up this year. Recall I said that there are 11 Republicans up and only Cruz and Scott are even in the realm of possible for flips. That leaves 23. 23 Democrat seats to defend if they want to simply hold serve. But they already have a problem. Joe Manchin, Democrat from West Virginia, has announced he's not running for re-election. That state is a lock to flip for Republican. Donald Trump won the state in 2020 by about 70-30. If Democrats only lose that state of West Virginia, but Trump wins the White House, the GOP would take back the Senate majority, giving them the edge in a 50-50 Senate, the same way Joe Biden's 2020 victory did. If the, Senate, if the Democrats retain the presidency, they cannot afford to lose any of the other democratically held seats. How likely is that? Bluntly, it ain't likely. The Republicans have the, just those two slightly competitive seats. The Democrats have seven, including one where Donald Trump won by 16 points and another state where he won by eight points. John Tester is up for re-election in Montana, where Trump won 57-41 four years ago. And Sherrod Brown is up in Ohio, where Trump won 53-45. Now, don't get me wrong, both are really excellent politicians. Tester, who was a farmer and rancher, ran seven points ahead of Obama in 2012. And a poll in Montana recently gave him a 61% approval rating, although he is on the air already with ads. One thing that Tester has going for him is that the Republicans could have a rough, a rough primary. One candidate, a former Navy SEAL called Tim Sheehy, is already running ads and has lined up almost all the institutional Republicans in the state. GOP Representative Matt Rosendale ran against Tester six years ago and says he plans to again this year. The conventional wisdom is that Rosendale is the weaker general election opponent for Tester and that some polling show that he would lose. But a big question here is whether Trump endorses Rosendale again like he did the last time or whether his aversions to losers keeps him on the sideline. I think Tester pulls it out, but I wouldn't bet the ranch on it. Get it? Bet the ranch? In Ohio, Sherrod Brown may be the most vulnerable senator in America. Unlike Tester, Brown's job approval is just 44%. But Brown has his way of surviving in, because his game seems to fit very well with Ohio. He's a populist who's unapologetically pro-labor and protectionist. He's also benefited from weak opponents in 2012 and 2018, and he may luck out this year again also because the Republicans seem headed for a bloody primary. You see a trend here? 
The Republicans have two self-funders, one who's positioning himself corner more as a moderate and one who's this rich car dealer who seems to be kind of a Trump acolyte. The strongest candidate is probably the third guy in the race, the current Secretary of State, but he has the least cash. This primary is in March, and I don't see the race getting easier for Brown. There is one other toss-up race that is today held by a sort of Democrat, and it will take me a minute to describe it. There has never been a race like it. It's in Arizona, a state that is effectively tied in the presidential race with Biden winning by about 1%. It's represented today by Kirsten Sinema. She was elected as a Democrat and then did everything possible to antagonize the Democrats in her state by jamming up the Biden agenda and generally being a jackass. Unsurprisingly, she attracted a primary. Congressman Ruben Gallego, a Marine veteran who served in Iraq and wants to be the first Latino senator from Arizona. And he's a progressive Democrat, quite a bit to the left of the last two Democrats who were elected in the Senate there, Cinema and Mark Kelly. Next into the pool was a well-known Republican, Carrie Lake, a former TV news anchor and election denier that just lost the race for governor in 2022 by a slim margin. Now, all of this would be plenty interesting on its own, but it enters the realm of sui generis when the incumbent, Cinema, announces that she's no longer a Democrat and is going to run for re-election as an independent. At least that's how it looks. That's how it looks. She doesn't have to announce until the spring, and she's been doing... Some things like release and polling memos that make it look like she's running, but her fundraising has actually slowed down a good bit. She has nearly 11 million bucks in the bank. Gallego has about 5 million. So what happens in this one? Well, there's no modern comparison to figure out what would happen. I suppose Cinema thinks she can skate right between lefty Gallego on the, and then on the right between Lake and just kind of get it just right. But it's hard to see how in our partisan environment where people are going to their corners and without a party helping her out, how she pulls that off. So does she hold a portion of her own Democratic support and weaken Gallego? I mean, there are two Democrats in this race. But the weakness of Lake among more moderate Republicans and the high profile way the way Sinema stops some Democratic ideas, maybe she actually takes away votes from Republicans. There hasn't been much polling in this race. But what there has been has been good for the Democrat. The one independent poll this summer had a Gallego at 34, Cinema at 26, and Lake at 25. If this is right, then it could be that the only way that Gallego wins is if Cinema's in the race. Making it even more delicate than that is for today, for right now, Chuck Schumer needs to keep Cinema happy, or at least not too pissed off, so that she stops caucusing with the Democrats. But can Cinema win? Her campaign leaked a memo earlier that showed her path to winning is some crazy math. 10 to 20 percent of Democrats, 25 to 30 of Republicans, and 70 percent of independents. That seems very unlikely. Anyhow, of the three toss-up races, this one seems by far to be the most interesting. So let's assume Tester, Brown, and Gallego somehow pull it out for the Democrats. Well, they basically need to pitch a perfect game in the rest of the races this year. That includes elections in legit swing states like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Nevada, three of which have well-funded Democratic incumbents in Michigan, which is probably the closest to blue in recent years. I think we can put Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin, Bob Casey of Pennsylvania, and Jackie Rosen of Nevada in the slightly favored column. But all of these blue leaners have potential problems. In Pennsylvania, the Republican is David McCormick, who barely lost to Dr. Oz in 22 and has a bunch of money. 
And if we're being honest, that Casey name of the incumbent ain't what it used to be in the state of Pennsylvania. In the Michigan race, the Democrat seems likely to be Alyssa Slotkin, a congresswoman, a former CIA official, very impressive woman. But her opponent is probably not going to be a classic MAGA anything. One guy, former congressman I served with, is a guy named Mike Rogers. He's kind of sort of old school Republican. And the other person is a primary who uh, in the per- is a guy who lost his seat in Congress after he, a Republican, voted to impeach Trump. In Nevada, the last race for the Senate that they had last year was the closest in the country. Interestingly, in the, uh, the war in Gaza, which is hurting Biden in the polls, may actually be an issue that helps Jackie Rosen, the incumbent Democrat there. So to reset the stakes, it's 51-41 now. Democrats sort of already lost West Virginia, so let's put it at 50-50. Three toss-ups, Ohio, Montana, and Arizona. Democrats can't lose a single one. And, if they, and, and they have to hold all four of the leaner states. That's kind of the equivalent, as I said, of pitching a perfect game or bowling a 300. Has it ever happened before? Well, wasn't 2022 basically perfect for Democrats? So let me give you the optimistic Democratic take. Since 2016... The Republicans have been dragged or maybe just marched into more destructive and self-destructive campaigns and their nominees. There hasn't been an election cycle like this where Democrats haven't exceeded expectation since 2016 when Trump walked down that staircase. 2018 midterms were were Democrats swamped, the red droplets from the 2022 midterms, no red wave at all. The Republicans haven't missed an opportunity and they haven't missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity. So they've, they've nominated weak, controversial candidates. So if you're a Democrat and you need an example of the best case, you don't need to go back decades, just over a year ago, in what should have been a historically bad cycle, Democrats successfully defended every single incumbent and managed to flip a GOP-held seat in the Senate. Does lightning strike twice? Well, like I said, it's doubtful. But how often does a presidential candidate at the top of the ticket generate pitch conversations about whether he should even be allowed to run? Or how often do we have one who has been indicted 91 times and may even be on trial as people vote? Maybe we throw out what we think we know about these things and admit that something extraordinary for Democrats would have to happen for them to hold the Senate. But these here might be extraordinary times. And we'll be right back with Ask Anthony Anything. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Ask Anthony Anything. This is the part of the program where we talk back a little bit to the issues of the day. Sometimes it's in the form of an email at wienerwabc at gmail.com. I've stopped even talking about my social media accounts. I'm over X and I don't know what's going on on threads or anywhere else. wienerwabc at gmail if you'd like to offer something up. And I've gotten a lot of mail. We've done a good deal of coverage on the radio show about this effort to use the 14th Amendment, Section 3, to remove Donald Trump from the ballot. And I've spoken about this thing in plenty of context. I made a decision early on 
not to do an episode dedicated to this because I kind of made the calculation that, frankly, although there might be interesting legal arguments, remember, this was all spurred by two members of the Federalist Society, a conservative think tank, who basically said, in their view, there's no doubt that President Trump is ineligible. But I kind of decided this was in the realm of an interesting legal issue, but it wouldn't have any practical effect because I didn't think there was much of a chance for Donald Trump to be taken off the ballot. But the question has bubbled up a lot in the month of December and continues and will probably have to be handled by the Supreme Court soon. So the formulation of the question I'm using as the jumping off point came recently in the form of an introduction um, on a cable television show. Take a listen. Multiple lower courts have already ruled that Trump himself did personally engage in insurrection. But a core question at issue here is for whom this insurrection clause was really intended. Which offices count? Which officers count? Was it intended for presidents and presidential candidates, or are they somehow exempted? So that's the framing of the issue in this narrow question that when the state of Colorado took up this question, the lower court decided that Donald Trump was not eligible because the, the, uh, he, his, uh, his office of presidency was not mentioned specifically in the 14th Amendment, Section 3. I think for the edification of this conversation, we should broaden it a little bit. I'll touch on that, but let's broaden it a little bit. And let me just start by reading this section, and so you can kind of get the sense for the vibe of it. This is the 14th Amendment, Equal Protection and Other Rights, Section 3, Disqualification from Holding Office. No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any states who, haven't been, who having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against same or given aid of comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may vote of a two-thirds of each house to remove such disability. So for context, for those of you who have not been keeping up with this, this was a section that was included shortly after the end of the Civil War to make sure that none of the insurrectionists, none of the Confederates, um, were able to get back into power. There weren't widespread trials. There was a concern that basically no one be allowed to get back any position to overthrow the government again. And it's important to point out that there were not a lot of trials because some people have tried to argue that this section requires someone, the president, to have been convicted um, of insurrection. All it says is engaged in. And the 30,000-foot way to view all of this is if you believe in the notion of textualism or original intent or going to the, to the minds and words of the people that wrote these sections of the Constitution, as this Republican court has said, then you read this thing a certain way, and in many ways, it is an open and shut case that Donald Trump is not eligible to run. But if you look at it another way, which is that this is a very political Supreme Court, and they're going to be looking for a way out, where is that escape hatch? Well, the first question comes up, well, is this even a section of the Constitution that's any more active? It is a live part of the Constitution. And some people have pointed out that they were talking about the Civil War they're not talking about today. Unfortunately, earlier versions of the draft of this document did include reference to the, to the rebellion, and they were excluded. And it was specifically excluded, if you look at some of the text, 
There is a, a, a in the debate that happened on the floor of Congress, Senator Peter Van Winkle of West Virginia points out the reason to make that change that was made in the final text, taking out uh, references to the rebellion. He said, quote, this is to go into our Constitution and to stand to govern future insurrection as well as the present. And I should like to have that point definitely understood at the time. So the idea that this is not an active section of the Constitution, I don't think that's very compelling. And the Colorado court, which took, him off the, took uh, Trump off the ballot, pointed that out. A second thing is, and this is what was referenced in that cut we played, does it refer, is it intended to mean the president? You'll notice when I read it, it doesn't say the president of the United States. Actually, this too came up in the debate over this language when they were approving it. And there was a conversation that, uh, that was had where there was, was asked, um, it was asked, you know, uh, will there, uh, it was asked by a Maryland Democrat, Reverdy Johnson. Why did you exclude references to the president in the United States? And the person who was leading the debate, Senator Morrell, says, let me call the senator's attention to the words to or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States. They had the conversation, does this cover the president? And indeed, as I read, um, there's a catch-all as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States. Now, some people have argued, and again, it was referenced in this conversation, about whether or not, and the president's people have hung their hat on, on this notion, well, the president takes a different type of oath as a member of Congress. He is, his oath is to faithfully discharge the, the laws of the state, not um, to the Constitution. Now, I think it's a thin read, and I think that it was clearly intended that, um, that this cover the president, as I said, but that's one of the arguments being made. But I find it very hard to believe that this Supreme Court, this textualist Supreme Court, would argue that the president of the United States is not an officer thereof. So then it becomes a question, in my view, of, of the process to which you decide that the president of the United States engaged in insurrection. Two courts, Colorado, well, two states rather, Colorado and Maine, have done it in different ways. Colorado had a five-day trial where they heard evidence, the president was allowed to bring evidence, and so were the people trying to get him off the ballot. In Maine, I think they had hearings there also. But I think if the Supreme Court is going to get Donald Trump back on the ballot, they're not going to say he was an insurrectionist. They're not going to say the 14th Amendment, Section 3, doesn't apply to him. They're not going to say he didn't take an oath. What they'll probably hang their hat on is this notion of, did he engage in insurrection? Now, they're not going to say, he didn't because he didn't stand trial, because that would be inserting language into the Constitution that did not exist. But it could be that they articulate some kind of standard that needed to be included by the states, some kind of due process that needs to be included in, uh, um, uh, by the states. Now, I think, knowing that this is the most political court in American history, they're going to find a way to get him back on the ballot. Now, I should also say this. I'm in the camp that believes the only way to truly vanquish Trump and Trumpism is to defeat him at the polls again. I hope they do restore him to the ballot, and I hope that Donald Trump loses the election just like he did to Joe Biden and just like he did to the popular vote to Hillary Clinton. That, I believe, is the only way we kind of get this country back on track is an, an election that once again defeats him. 
But that's a little bit of the explanation of the 14th Amendment, a very short summary of it. Now there's plenty of cases. If you want, if you have, you can only read one thing and you have a little bit of time. The decision by the Colorado Supreme Court that took Donald Trump off the ballot is probably the best that I've read, including all of the historical stuff that I read to you today. Um, so I would encourage you, if you do have some time, to go take a look at it. And one thing to keep in mind about this is this is part, part and parcel of a national education around the 14th Amendment. It's also come up uh, um, um, uh, uh, around, um, around reparations. It's come up around the conversation around taking down monuments. I'm one of these people who's not afraid of history, and I think that if this conversation gets us once again looking at the Constitution, understanding what kind of country we were, um, and understanding that the people that, that helped repair this country, the Reconstructionists after the Civil War, they're also founding fathers. So that's Ask Anthony Anything. As I mentioned, wienerwabc at gmail.com. Really do appreciate your joining us. I hope your new year is off to a great start. I wish you nothing but the best. We're going to have a lot of opportunities to revisit both the Senate race, these court cases, and so much more this year. And I hope you'll share this episode, subscribe, let us know what you think. It's been, a great, uh, it's been great to be with you in the year 2023, and we're off to a great start here today. So this marks the end of the Middle Unplugged. <laughs>